Everybody knows La Traviata. If they don't, at some point in their life, they will. Because I think nearly all of us have wept for the noble, self-sacrificing Violetta who gives up her lover, sinks into poverty, and dies of tuberculosis in the last act. Everyone, too, perhaps if you're English, has had the tunes run on and on in your head after a performance or indeed before, as Alfred Noy's poem, The Barrel Organ, which was once learnt by rote by schoolchildren, including myself, reminds us, and there La Traviata sighs another sadder song, and there Il Trovatore cries a tale of deeper wrong. But when Verdi and his librettist, Francesco Maria Piave, were working on this opera La Traviata in the early 1850s, they were in fact creating something that was extraordinarily dangerous. This was going to be a modern dress opera about an upmarket prostitute, and it would pinpoint what both Verdi and Piave thought was social hypocrisy, particularly amongst men in their treatment of women. And it was to be set in a Paris and a demi-monde, a, a, a half-world, as it were, that the composer himself knew. For Verdi spent long periods between 1847 and 1852 living in Paris. This, of course, was a city that was also embracing an entirely new artistic creed, a, a desire to show the world as it really was, realism. Think no further than the expressionist painters, delighting in the railway stations, the cafes, the cities, the green parks of the modern 19th century industrial city. The novel is based originally on Alexander Dumas' novel La Dame aux Comelia, and he had had a relationship with a celebrated member of the Demi-Monde, who's buried now in a cemetery at Père Lachaise in Paris, um, and it may well be that Verdi saw the play that Dumas' fils built out of the original novel uh, in February 1852. Um, it's perfectly clear that Verdi who probably saw the production, if he did, with his new companion, uh, a singer called Giuseppina Straponi, might have responded particularly to the idea of the fallen woman or the woman who was outside society. Verdi's father-in-law, the father of his first wife, had obviously complained about Verdi moving Straponi into his own home. And there exists in Verdi's letters a very, very firm, robust complaint to his former father or his father-in-law about, you know, uh, Straponi saying there is a woman who lives in my house and she lives there by my wish and my command and so on. So it may well have been that the story of this woman uh, who will become Violetta Valerie had appealed to both Straponi and Verdi for autobiographical reasons. What we do know is that by October 1852, Verdi had acquired a copy of the play and decided he had to make an opera out of it. The opera was intended for Venice and for the Fenice Theatre in Venice, where Rigoletto, another radical revolutionary work, had had its premiere, and where Verdi knew that censorship was a great deal more relaxed than elsewhere in northern Italy, where the Austrians were in charge. Alas, modern-day courtesans were too strong a meat even for the Venetians. So the first performance, in an extraordinary move, took the story of Violetta Valerie and her love affair with Alfredo Germont back to the beginning of the 18th century, to the time of Louis XIV. Indeed, it wasn't until the 1880s that Alfredo's father, Germont, the father was allowed to wear, for the first time on stage, a 19th century top hat when he came to Violetta intending to tell her to give up his son so that his daughter could make a useful, good and social marriage. 
Violetta dying of consumption can't have made an awful lot of sense, I think, uh, in the context of Louis XIV, but of course it would have made, made a great deal of sense in the context of a 19th century industrial city. Uh, some of you with older memories remember signs in the buses in London which said, don't spit, don't spit, because of course that was one way in which tuberculosis was transmitted. The first performance of the opera was on the 6th of March, 1853, in Venice. It was jeered at times by the audience, who directed some of their scorn at the casting of soprano Fanny Salvini Donatelli in the lead role of Violetta. Though much admired as a singer, they thought that she was too old at 38, and how shall I put this tactfully, a little plump to credibly play a young woman who was clearly dying of consumption. Nevertheless, the first act met with applause and there was cheering at the end of that act. But in the second act, the audience began to turn against the performance, especially after the singing of the baritone, that's the father, Felice Varese, and the tenor who was singing Alfredo Lodovico Graziani. The day after, Verdi wrote to his friend Muzio in what has now perhaps become his most famous letter. He wrote, La Traviata last night was a failure. Was the fault mine or the singer's? Time will tell. Well, time has certainly told. It's become the fifth most performed opera in the entire world, up there with La Boheme, Rigoletto, Carmen, and the Magic Flute. After making revisions between 1853 and May 1854, mostly in Acts 2 and 3, La Traviata was presented again in Venice, this time at another theatre, the Teatro San Benedetto. And the performance was a huge success, largely due to Maria Spezia Aldigueria's portrait of Violetta. Well, we have a quartet of guests tonight to explore this revival of Verdi's opera, directed by the great German director, Peter Konvichny, and to talk about making opera happen here at ENO. We have Sarah Redgwick, who's covering the role of Violetta, and she'll be sharing her ideas about Verdi's most affecting heroine and one of his most demanding soprano roles, as well as singing music from the opera with, for us with the pianist Andrew Wood, who's a member of the music staff here at English National Opera. Christina Medlin, who's head of costume at English National Opera, will be sharing her trade secrets with us, how to make an opera look top draw with a bargain basement budget, and has working on the revival of this production, La Traviata in particular. And you can see one of several Violetta's costumes here on display. We'll be also looking, as you probably also realise, at images, still images from the production as we talk. Our first guest, though, is Dr Aoife Monks, who is the reader in drama, theatre and performance studies in the Department of Drama at Queen Mary College in the University of London. Would you please welcome Aoife Monks? Aoife, as I've said, Verdi wanted to create a modern dress opera. Uh, can we think why he would suddenly, in the middle of, of, of the 18th, 19th century, want to do this? I, I think this is a fascinating question, and, and perhaps it's worth also noting that the opera was originally titled Love and Death, and the censor also required that that title was changed. And when we think theatre and opera seem to be deeply concerned with love and death for 2,000 years, why would we want to change that title? Um, I think there's something very important happening in the mid-19th century, which is that actually artists begin to think that the way they might access truth is through something that's quite quite equivalent to the scientific method, which of course emerges in the 18th and 19th century. So how do we find truth as scientists? We observe something very carefully and we describe it in great detail. And so in, in the arts, in the novel and the painting, and much later in opera and theatre, we see a desire to 
observe the real world and to describe it in detail. Now, how do you do that on stage? You do it through dress. So you make performers wear clothing, occupy a sort of uh, scenographic milieu with the right furniture so that you can then understand why they behave the way they do. And the art begins to develop more and more imagining the spectator, who of course at this point, or a little bit later, begins to sit in the dark, because we now have electric light, staring into this illuminated space, as if they're scientists observing an experiment taking place and understanding cause and effect, where environment costume is actually causing certain kinds of behavior. In this case, perhaps, the behavior of the fallen woman. Um, I think that's what also makes it so deeply shocking in this period. That, that it's in contemporary dress, and mm. that, that, that you don't expect to go to the opera house and see suddenly people that you might have met the previous evening at a party, or at least dressed like that. Well, I think a, a quote from Clement Scott describing the first performance of Hedda Gabler some years later in London, where he said, this is all a little too like Balaam to be pleasant. <laughs> uh, I think that sums up the problem, that what we, what we see in opera and in theatre is idealism and abstraction, really, before this moment. So we think of opera emerging from the court mask, where aristocrats dress up as figures from antiquity, so decorative Roman shepherds or Neptune. They wear very elaborate costume, and what they imagine is that they're, they're, they're sort of embodying an exemplary ideal. They're learning moral lessons from the past. So the idea that you go to the theatre and rather than seeing these exemplary, exalted figures, you see people just like yourself, this seems an affront to audiences and indeed to the censor. Because what it requires is not that we learn moral instruction, but that in fact we might turn our criticism upon ourselves. We might ask questions about how we live, what our views of women are, uh, how we understand the world, rather than imagining that theatre and opera will instruct us in how to behave. So this is imagining what an audience does very differently, I think. And you could argue, interestingly, that modern dress is essentially invented in this moment. While you might have actors wearing contemporary dress previously, they're not interested particularly in accuracy. It's much more about aspiration. So you go to the theatre to really adore the actress in her beautiful clothes, rather than seeing someone who's living in a suburban house in Balham, which is a little bit disappointing, as Clement Scott discovered. For all, for all the sense of the present tense that Verdi and Piave may have intended, this is also an opera that looks in curious ways distinctly over its shoulder. First of all, um, where do Violetta and Alfredo go in Act Two when they run away from Paris? Mm. They actually go to a kind of 18th century version of the countryside. And then there's that extraordinary aria at the end for the baritone for Germont called Di Provenza, in which he sings about the joys of Provence. And the aria is written in an old-fashioned musical form to suggest we're looking back at a kind of almost the world of shepherds and the pastoral in a way. So nostalgia's in, in here too. I think this, this is such an interesting opera because it's so distinctly modern in a 19th century sense, both for its interest in realism and its sort of scientific interest, and on the other hand, for its nostalgia. Nostalgia is absolutely a modern disease. So in the 17th century, nostalgia, which literally translates as homesickness, was a physical disease, and doctors would treat it with medicine. And it was something that uh, sailors were particularly afflicted with, so they would have to be treated a little bit like for scurvy or something. Um, later, in the 18th 
19th and 19th century, it's a, it becomes a psychological form of melancholia, and it afflicts entire countries. And what we're really seeing is the rapid expansion of cities. So we think London, for example, moved from a million people in uh, 1800 to two and a half million by 1850. I mean, we're more than doubling populations of cities. People are moving off the land. And what's fascinating is by mid-19th century, we start to see paintings where agricultural life looks incredibly seductive, where the idea of living on the land is viewed as a sort of Garden of Eden, where we imagine somehow we might escape modernity, escape the exhaustion, the railway timetables, the factory work, uh, and go back to some kind of space of freedom. Now, what of course goes alongside that, so we have the countryside as a place that we could escape to and that we long for as city dwellers. The other thing we long to escape to is the past. So there's a very deep interest in, in returning to some kind of folk past. Now, this wraps itself up very brilliantly, I think, in Verdi's work, because we do see in this opera a real sense of, of fleeing to the countryside, of gaining some kind of freedom from the constrictions of modern life. And at the same time, we see Verdi's role in Italian nationalism, which of course is deeply nostalgic. The idea that you can return to a kind of folk culture, you can reclaim a lost home, essentially. And the fact that Verdi is taken up as a national hero in the unification of Italy, which is going on right as this opera is being written, I think really plays into this sense of nostalgia as homesickness, that it can be found in the land and it can be found in the past. It's almost impossible now, from where we are in the 21st century, not to see this opera as being about how men subject women to their own absolute patriarchal authority. We can't see this opera mm. other than see Violetta as a victim of masculinity. I think Violette is a fascinating character, actually, because the fallen woman is an absolute archetype of the 19th century. The Victorians, particularly, are fascinated by women with deviant sexuality, whether that's as an adulteress or as a courtesan in this case, or uh, as, a, as a woman of illegitimate children, or indeed actresses and singers who are also viewed in the category of fallen woman. So there's a deep fixation on this figure, and it goes alongside a kind of medicalization of bad female behavior. So, and a medical obsession with hysteria, for example, the idea that a woman's womb is the cause of her misbehavior, and therefore, if we treat her sexual problems, she will behave herself. It's probably no accident that these suffragettes, who are also emerging a little bit later in the century, are seen as hysterical. So, the theater is one of the places you go to see fallen women, and there's a lot of them about. They populate the 19th century stage. And of course, the exciting thing is you get to see a woman who is sexual. She's breaking all the rules of 19th century culture. And you also get to see an actress or a singer play that figure who, she, who is herself breaking certain kinds of social rules and might well actually be a prostitute. So there's a sort of doubling of the erotic excitement of this figure. It's very important, however, that she dies. So she always dies. Um, so we contain her sexuality, we enjoy it, and then we kill her off. Um, and K. Giraud made the point that repentance is a pretty fatal uh, form of behaviour on the stage. If you repent, you die almost instantly. So he sort of <laughs> advises against it. Um, 
I think in the case of this opera, though, while we absolutely see Verdi retain lots of the archetype here, I mean, we can absolutely see it in the story, there's ways in which Violetta is given a kind of psychological depth, which again goes back to that interest in realism, which might start to complicate her. She becomes much more of an individual. We might start to ask why she behaves as she does, why she's put in this position, as well as being interested in the excitement of this woman. So I think even as Verdi is repeating a lot of the tropes, he's also starting, I think, to critique them, which again may be partly why it's such a shocking opera for its day. Eva Monks, thank you very much. Stay with us, please. Um, we're joined now by Sarah Redgwick, who's covering the role of Violetta Valerie, La Traviata, and also by Andrew Wood. Would you please welcome Andrew Wood and Andrew Smith? I'm I'm going to call you. I apologise. I've obviously remembered an old friend here, but you are an old friend. Anyway, um, please, Andrew Smith and would uh, join us with Sarah Redgwick. Sarah, before, before um, you and Andrew perform us, um, some question. Why do you think that Violetta, in the opening act, who's had obviously quite a jolly time and is sick and knows she's ill, decides to let herself fall in love with Alfredo? I, think, I, I wouldn't say let herself. I think it takes her completely by surprise. He's unlike anything that she's ever experienced before. <coughs> she, she's used to it. She's kind of at the top of her game and high-profile gentleman on her arm like the Baron. And suddenly, this, in this, especially in this production, Alfredo comes in, who's a bit of a bookworm, isn't dressed in the beautiful dinner suit that everyone else is dressed in. And his feelings are actually genuine for her. He doesn't want anything. He just... It's Violetta, the person that he falls in love with, I think. And this is taking her totally by surprise because all he wants is her. He doesn't want any of the lifestyle and anything that comes with it. And she's never experienced a man just wanting her for herself. She's used to sort of playing the part and he just wants that stripped back, he just wants her. And she's never really experienced love before and had people say, I love you and not wanting anything in return. That might suggest that what she realises at that moment is the possibility of independence where hitherto she's simply been a victim. Yeah, um, I don't think she sees herself as a victim. I think she's just used to this lifestyle, and um, especially in this production, um, she's not very sort of forthright with showing emotion. Everything's very closed. We can't really get inside her head too much, and I don't think she necessarily sees herself as a victim. This is just the way of life that she knows, and she's risen to the top. She's very well respected. There's also a kind of recklessness about her, isn't there? I mean, yeah. you know, she ups six and off they go, as we said, to, to the country. Regardless of the fact that she's going to have to pay for this lifestyle and she's back and forth trying to fund this lifestyle without telling Alfredo all this is going on. And there's definitely... You don't see the recklessness, particularly when she's, again, in company. She has this very closed strength about her and inner confidence and won't let her guard down at all but especially I think in moments where she is left alone to reflect on exactly what this man has done to her especially in the Sempre Libera I think that is reflected in sort of the big coloratura phrases it shows that what on earth is happening and she can be reckless and it is it's going on but I think she sustains it in front of people. Do you feel that Peter Convichny's Villetta who we're going to meet tonight 
is in some ways significantly different from other violettas, either you've sung or mm -hmm. you've seen or, or listened to. Absolutely. I think this is very different. It took me a little while to get my head around it when I first started working on the production because it is so stripped back. Um, you know, there isn't very much set and it really does focus on the drama and especially as the singer you have to make sure because you haven't got all these props and things to help you, you really do have to portray the story and also the fact normally we see Violetta being very outrageous and extravagant and really being the life and soul of the party but in this production you see her as being incredibly strong and she does not let her guard down. Even sometimes with Alfredo, I think um, there is a point where she, you know, she just wants him to say that he loves her and he says he adores her. And she has these moments where I think that's all she wants, but it, it's very, very different because it's very closed. And that took a little time to get my head around, but it's been a fantastic, challenging experience just to sort of turn the whole thing on its head and experience a new side of Violetta that I've never seen before. How demanding is the role for a singer? Incredibly demanding. I think it's one of the hardest parts I've ever done, and I think it will still take me a few years yet, because you have so many different sides. People often say, you're an Act 1 Violetta or you're an Act 3. Now, Act 1, she's, you know, it's very florid, lots of, you know, very, very high notes, lots of coloratura, but then you have to go through the beautiful duet with Je Mon Père in Act 2, having the beautiful lyric lines, and then obviously go into Act 3, where you have to see her fragility and display that within the, you know, the addio aria. Um, in the third act and then of course the death so it's a huge dramatic journey and of course in this production where we don't have the intervals normally you get that time just to sort of gather your thoughts but you have to just go straight through so it's it's the stamina and just keeping the drama going for two hours solid what are you and Andrew going to perform for us? We're going to perform Sempre Libera uh, at the end of Act One. So this is the dazzling glittering, the dazzling, glittering aria from Absolutely. the end of Act One. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. 
Sarah Redrick, Andrew Smith, thank you both very much indeed. Uh, a wonderful curtain raiser for the evening that is about to come. Um, our last guest, ladies and gentlemen, is Christina Medlin, who's head of costume at English National. Will you welcome Christina Medlin? <laughs> Christina, this is a co-production with Opera Graz in Austria, and I wonder how on earth you adapt the costumes that have been part of an original production to fit the cast here, or do you start all over again with the designs and make new costumes? It's, it's a mixture of both. I mean, our chorus is a much different shape and size to the one in Graz, so probably when we did this originally in 2013, we remade about 75% of the chorus. And then, of course, the principles, um, again, different shapes and sizes, so we remake as well. And whose is the Violetta's dress that you brought with us? It's Sarah's, if she goes on. <laughs> so, so every Violetta has her own dress? They do, they do. We've got a row of them backstage. Uh, is that important? I mean, you don't simply adapt one dress to fit. You have to make a dress that fits each of no, these No, women. no, no, no. If, if they can go into the original costume, we will put them into the original costume. But again, everybody's different shapes and sizes. And 
we've got to have something on standby if they do go on. And do you borrow costumes from other productions? I mean, in this production, there's a large number of, of gentlemen and women to some extent in kind of quite contemporary evening dress. Now, can you go and raid the wardrobe store and find top hats, ties? We don't with live productions. Um, because we do so many co-productions and we do rentals, um, at the end of the run, they're kind of cleaned, boxed up, inventoried, and put into our warehouse because they might go out to another house. Um, but when we kill off a production, we take those costumes costumes out and we add those to our dead stock um, and for instance on the last production of Traviata before this one um, you'll see some of those petticoats and crinolines in our upcoming production of Pirates so we do reutilize as much costume as possible but only once the show has been killed. And, and do you borrow costumes um, sometimes from other productions, um, uh, uh, sorry, do, you, do, you, do you make everything new or do you buy ready-made costumes? It's, it's a mixture, we have everything on our stage from stuff from Primark or M&S, which you'll see a lot this evening, um, to bead-encrusted gowns that have been custom-made that cost thousands of pounds. So it's a, it's a varies. And Give us a hint at what came from M&S and Primark. <laughs> what kind of things do you buy on the high street? We, we buy quite a lot on the high street. Um, most of the tuxedos that you'll see this evening would have been bought that we would have altered, and a lot of the ladies' frocks. Footwear, I mean, there's lots of stuff that we buy. And we buy a lot of vintage as well and feed that in, so it's always a mixture. And are you always looking for things? I mean, as... Head of, head of course, I mean, is your kind of eye straying to places where you know you're going to see interesting things? If, if I know that we've got a new show coming up, I kind of have that in the back of my head, and yes, I so start, start shopping for it early. When the designer comes, supposing it's a production that begins here and then mm. goes as a co-production, so when the designer of the costumes comes, how does that relationship work? It varies. Every production and every design team is different. Um, some are super organized and start a year in advance, like we have with our Pirates of Penzance. Others are a little bit more organic coming together, like Queen of Spades, which is a little bit late for me, but we're still plowing through. So it, all, it always varies. And, and do they often make impossible demands? Nothing's impossible. <laughs> we have, and it, it, they stretch the budget and the limitation with time. And if you saw our production of Cellini, originally the Pope that makes his big grand entrance, um, the director wanted his crown to be all lit up in neon. And it would have been feasible. We could have done it. It would have cost a lot of money. Um, but that kind of went by the wayside. So you always have to make compromises. It's what you can do with the time and the budget that you have. When you say the word, nothing is impossible, I cannot but resist. What has been, in a way, the, the greatest challenge, I mean, leaving aside the papal tiara uh -huh. uh, with Neon, but what, what, what has been the thing that really has taxed you in the time that you've been here? One recent thing, we did a small children's opera at the Young Vic, um, and there's a penguin costume in that. And the actor playing the penguin is, is quite tall, and when we had one of the first rehearsals, the feedback from the children was that your penguin's too big. And this was a very tight budget, and most of the money went on the penguin. So we had to adapt the penguin costume, chop him down a bit, and the poor actor in the costume had to crouch. Now, luckily, it's only a 45-minute long show, um, but he did have to do some physical therapy and I think he was in a bit of pain. So that was, <laughs> that was a bit of a disaster, but it well, still worked. Well, as they yeah. say, no game without pain. Clearly supplies to yeah. costume. Now, looking at the Violetta dress there, um, it looks like the kind of dress that you might take off the stand, put on and happily set off for a party somewhere in the West End. Yeah. Is that true? 
Well, this this was made, so actually um, it was custom made. Um, but yes, you could you could just wear it out to a party. But are all the costumes you make finished there? I mean, is it lined? Yeah, for it's example? lined. It's it's um it's it's finished to as you would wear normal clothes. I mean, sometimes if there's quick changes, going back to Cellini is a great example. There's a whole bunch of monks cloaks that had to come off very quickly, so we used magnets as fastenings. Mm. But normally, I mean, it's just it's it's clothes like you would wear. But is there no element of kind of illusion, smoke and mirrors, in which, you know, for example, clothes that belong to the 18th or the 19th century mm. that have extraordinary, in the originals, extravagant trim of lace and made from rich fabrics, satin, silks and so on. I mean, is there a kind of element of illusion you have to find ways of getting around that? Well, we do. Um, it's all about getting the kind of foundation and undergarments right that the costume then sits on top of, so that's more corseted. And sometimes if the singer doesn't like wearing a corset. Some people like having that to work against, others don't. Um, you kind of build it into the costume so that you still get the silhouette, even though it doesn't have all as you would wear of the time. The corsets are an interesting issue because mm. presumably the corset has to give you the silhouette, but it, it cannot constrain the singer. No. So, so what's the kind of balance between, is there a special way of making a singer's 18th or 19th century corset? Well, we sometimes, if um, the singer feels a bit restricted, we can put in some panels that are, might be a lycra, so not as the period fabric, but is breathable. Or you can lace it up with elastic, so it gives a little bit of give as well. But it's trying to find that compromise. And Spanx mm -hmm. is a fabulous <laughs> invention that we use on lots of productions to kind of you know keep everything as it should be. And men as well. There's undershirts that you can get for men that kind of give them a six-pack. It's quite amazing. We use those two. There'll be a queue outside, I think. <laughs> and I, a friend of mine was saying to me that he wondered whether um, the whole new generation of fabrics that really belong for the last 30 or 40 years, lycra and mm. so forth, in a way have made the, your job much easier in terms of running a wardrobe. You know, the, to take a simple example, the stage when tights wrinkled at the knee or, you know, the, or dropped and sagged at the bottom, that no longer happens. We have fabrics that allow themselves to mould to bodies and things. We do, but it's funny because you will get some designers that um, want to create that illusion like we did um, a production where there was a whole bunch of cat suits it was 1930s and they wanted the baggy thing going on at the knee so we had to kind of create that with modern fabrics that's an odd choice it is it? <laughs> but it's, you know. and, and have you ever had a disaster in the middle of a performance um, not well. We might have had some quick change disasters. Normally, if something doesn't go right, we sort it out during the rehearsal period. We've had, like, for instance, on Otello, Cassio, the first time we saw him in a dress rehearsal, the director and designer didn't like the color of his jacket. He was blending into the scenery too much. So we had to make something very quickly in a short space of time. But normally, we work things out during the rehearsal process. But there's been the occasional quick change that has gone wrong, particularly on Cozy Fantuti, where you might be waiting a couple extra minutes for those guys to get on stage but yeah. and, and give us a sense of the people who are there with you behind stage from the whole beginning of the process. I mean, what kind of people are making these costumes with you? What kind of people are looking after them? What have you got behind you? We, we've got a huge department, actually. A lot of it's kind of casual and freelance makers, but we'll start with the production, um, building it, which happens up in West Hampstead. So I've got a dye department, I've got a millinery department, I've got a team of makers, and then depending on the size of the production, we employ a lot of freelance people as well. Um, then when it comes to the theatre, um, it's then kind of handed over to the theatre wardrobe staff here, where 
I've got a team of wardrobe mistresses and dressers and wig and makeup technicians that work together until we get to first night and then they kind of take it over until it closes. And are there particular skills in costume making that you know you always have to go out for? You know, the person who makes particular kind of hats, millinery or something? Well, dyeing and printing is one of the big things. We do a lot of digital printing and we don't have the facilities to do that in-house so we go and take that out a lot. But And mask making? Do you mask ma we do that in-house and we can't we combine with props as well, so it's a lot of sharing of skills. Okay, a last question. Um, supposing that we had been here uh, in a production in which everybody at the end of a, a Verdi melodrama is lying in pools of blood, Forza del Destino maybe, what do you do about cleaning the costumes for the next day? Well, that's when you have a really good dresser standing in the wings with lots of towels to kind of mop it all up. But we use stage blood and we test it on the fabrics before we actually use it on stage to make sure that it comes out. Depending on how much blood there is, we might have duplicate costumes so that they don't turn pink during the run of the show. Okay, a last question before we ask the audience, mm -hmm. is there a challenge that you've always been waiting for uh, as, as in charge of costumes that hasn't yet come, something you really like to do? <laughs> Um, I prefer, I must admit, the more period productions instead of the modern dress because it's just nice to have a bit of a change. Um, so maybe a big period production with a large budget, but I don't see that happening in the near future. We'll see. <laughs> a very tactful answer. Thank you very, thank you very much, Dean Christine Magid. We have a little time in hand, ladies and gentlemen. Um, if you would like to ask questions of any of our four guests, please do. Um, there will be a roving microphone on its way. Catch my eye with the microphone and we'll get it to you. Who would like to ask a question? Yes. Hi there. Um, me and 22 other acting students are here. We're students of Christopher's. Um, so I have a question for the actor. I'm sorry, I forget your name. Sarah. Sarah, okay. Um, I'm not sure if you do any other straight plays or musicals of that kind or if you just do opera. Do you? Uh, main, mainly do opera. I have done some musicals. I've done Kurt Vile. Um, I haven't done sort of a sort of standard musical, really. Uh, I've mainly done opera, and I do do some cabaret and things like that as well. I was just wondering if you have any insight on, like, what's the difference that you find, uh, or if you, I don't know if you do know a difference of a play with just a script versus an opera. Yeah, I've never, I've never done it. The nearest thing I've done to it is sort of operettas like De Flay de Mouse or Beethoven's Fidelio that has dialogue in it. And for me, it's very unusual because I'm not used to using my speaking voice too much. And it's the difference of actually, you know, we don't have microphones. It's projecting the speaking voice and then transferring it to the singing voice, but not sort of keeping the speaking voice higher. That's, a, that's the sort of nearest experience I've had to doing a play, really. Oh, that's right. thank you. Okay, thank you. Can I ask a question that comes off that question, which is, you know, you, you, you begin life as a singer. Yes. Uh, so you then have to learn to act rather than an actor who learns to sing. Yes. I Does mean, that, is, that, is that a different, interesting way of doing it? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a, a little bit different. I mean, I started, I grew up through amateur theatre, amateur operatic. So I did, I, I actually grew up in musicals. Musicals was my first love. So I used to do five or six shows a year. So I did have an experience on an amateur level. So it wasn't like I kind of had a, a choral background or anything. So I always had the knowledge of drama, but vocally I went towards opera. So. Okay, another question, please. Who would like to ask a question? I just wanted to 
wanted to know how many people are employed in the costume department. Shall I just repeat the question in case it didn't hear the back? How many people are in, in the costume department? Yes. We have about 22 permanent employees, but then we get lots of casuals in, so all of our dressing staff is casual, and depending on the size of the production, we get a lot of extra people in, so that can vary sometimes to up to 50, 60 people. It depends on the size of the show and the production. Is there a kind of sort of book of extra people that you call I mean, the share between theatres in London? Well, yes, and also designers usually like to work with their same team of um, makers as well. So it's, it's, yeah. Thank you. Another question. Who'd like to ask a question? In the back. The microphone will find its way to you. <laughs> oh, sorry. You're first. You're first. This is for Sarah as well. I noticed um, in your song how even though like opera has such technical value. How do you keep that technical discipline to hit the notes correctly and stuff while still retaining the emotional honesty you did? The combination of the drama. Yes, basically. Yeah, I mean, I have, a like Andrew, a wonderful team of vocal coaches and things who I work with. And it's kind of, a lot of it is through trial and error. You'll do it in rehearsal, you'll prepare it, and then suddenly, you know, you, you have to sort of balance um, the difference of kind of getting too emotional and too involved so that it doesn't affect the voice. Um, I can be, I, I mean, I love the drama and sometimes I go a little too far and have to pull it back. Um, but I'd, I'd rather that and pull it back than not reach the dramatic level that I need to. Uh, so it, it's sort of looking at it myself and working it out and then working with Andrew and getting the vocal part and the stylistic efforts right and then going with the director and then it's, you know, that's the rehearsal period, getting everything together and working out how far we can go dramatically or can we fall off a chair at that point? Will it affect the music? Can we sort of cry or scream or do whatever? Will that affect the voice? So it's, a re it's really a team effort to get it together. Thank you. Thank you. We have our last question in the corner. The microphone's on its way to you. All right, for... First, uh, for Sarah again. Um, I know you're really on the hot seat tonight. Um, the, uh, this is this production I hear is in English, and that song was in English. What is the different? What is the primary difference for you between doing it in English versus Italian? It's actually uh, the Italian. You've got a lot more open vowels in the line. It was it was written in Italian, but this translation is super. Actually, Martin Fitzpatrick, who works at English National Opera, did it, and I think for me, I'm a Yorkshire girl. And I love my diphthongs. <laughs> I'm constantly pulled up, light, my, if they're on a high note. And that's the challenge for me singing in English, sort of not over-pronouncing and chewing the text and taking it sort of more like the Italian, where we sort of sing through the vowels a little bit more. So it, it's actually, I find it personally a lot harder to sing in English than in the Italian. So it's been a wonderful challenge for me to study Violetta. I've done Violetta three times before, so to do it in English has been a fantastic challenge, especially with this production as well, that's totally different. Ladies and gentlemen, time has been, you must be allowed to get yourselves ready for the performance tonight. Um, can I thank you, all of you, for being here? Thank you, all those who ask questions too, but our special thanks to our four guests, Christina Midlin, Sarah Redswick, Aoife Monks, and of course, Andrew Smith. Thank you all very much indeed for being with us. Thanks.